our girls were always particularly interested in ruby red slippers from Oz, usually paired with socks of a different color and a tutu and possibly some sunglasses or a hat. It was always enjoyable to go for an inconspicuous trip to the store or to a restaurant with a princess in your presence. You know, it's a matter of inexperience when it comes to a five-year-old picking out their clothes, but it can also be a matter of ignorance. They may not know what they need to wear, and it could move a little farther and be a fight over the weather. You say, no, 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 you need a jacket before you leave this house. You need to dress a little warmer today. It's, it's, maybe it's the other side of it. Say, no, you don't necessarily need to wear that parka today. It's going to warm up later, so maybe you want to layer up just a little bit more. But the battle grows up. It's not just from inexperience or from ignorance. Sometimes it comes from rebellion. And that probably is where your mind first went. You can see a parent and a teenager battling before that teenager leaves the house. It can stem from rebellion. Listen closely and you can hear that parent of a teenager saying, I'm not letting you leave the house dressed like that. For generations, rebellious teenagers and their parents have clashed over what clothing is appropriate for school or for out in public. It may just be inappropriate for the day or the time or the occasion, or it may be dangerously immodest. And moms and dads say, let me be abundantly clear. You're going to take that off and you're going to put that on. You can hear it, can't you? Some of you have said it, haven't you? Well, as we think about that, Why does the parent say those things? The parent says, well, the reason that I'm telling you this is because I love you. I care about you. And I have information that you clearly don't have. And I want you to have an awareness of what's going to happen. So you're going to take that off and you're going to put this on. A loving mother or father cares about what their children wear. You agree with that? So does God. You say, "Uh uh-huh, hot dog. He's going to tell me that I need to dress up and wear my Sunday best every Sunday and, and we need to wear a certain way. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a fight in your house about clothing with God? You see, we can be just like those preschoolers and we can say, no, God, I want to wear what I want to wear. And God says, no, 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 no. You're going to take that off and you're going to put this on. I'm not talking about physical clothes. I'm talking about the very subject of the Beatitudes where we're coming. God cares about what you wear. And I want you to hear this and know that. Not your physical clothes, but God wants his children clothed in humility. As the video showed and some of the singing that we have done pointed toward very pointedly, very, very clearly toward Christ. We need to understand that God's desire is that we would be clothed in humility and we would take off pride. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 8 together. Turn there in your Bible, if you've got a Bible with you, or turn it on and and scroll to it. But 1 Peter chapter 5, this will illustrate our beatitude. And while you're turning there, I'll just kind of give you background. For those of you that weren't with us for the last couple of weeks, we've started a series in Matthew chapter 5 on the beatitudes. These are statements of Jesus about the blessings of God. And we're spending two weeks on each of the beatitudes. 
Beatitudes, and we'll use a different place in Scripture to sort of illustrate what we're talking about. And today we're talking about humility. We'll come back to Matthew 5 in a moment, but let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 5. And all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all of your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. God calls you and me to live our lives clothed in humility. He calls us to be humble people. He says, some of you are prideful, and I want you to take that off, and I want you to put on humility. And we're going to invest time here in 1 Peter for a moment, but I want to draw your attention back, if we can, to Matthew chapter 5. It was a very simple verse. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, let's read this together. Here we go. You ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you were with us last week, I shared with you two thoughts. We talked about the calling and the blessing. The calling is that we would be poor in spirit. And the blessing is that ours would be the kingdom of heaven. It seems almost antithetical. It seems like a paradox. But as we explained it, our idea is that we would begin to get traction in the blessings of God. And we would recognize that while you may have much to offer your family, or your school, or your business, or your sports team, when it comes to your position before a holy God, you are and I are spiritually bankrupt. We're empty. We have nothing to bring to the table to God. All that we have comes from Him. In fact, it's important for you to remember, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, what do you have that was not given to you? Everything that you've got came from God's hand. Everything. And there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor or to please God on our own. There are none that are righteous. But we come to him empty-handed as beggars and find that he is not only all that we want, he is all that we need. We need to understand this very pointedly. If you were here last week, you would, might remember that I used three examples from Scripture. And I'll, I'll do this quickly. Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, one of the most gifted and godly men in all of the Scripture, came into the very presence of God. I mean, here's a guy that, that could boast. He was a silver-tongued prophet. And when he came into the presence of God, read it with me. What did he say? Woe is me, I am undone. And that was in the Old Testament. And then we see Peter at the uh, miraculous catch of fish and God calling him. He sees Jesus in all of his splendor and holiness. And what does he say? Read it with me. Get away from me. I am a sinful man. You see the bankrupt nature of these these words? They said, I'm undone. I'm ruined in the presence of God. There's nothing that I can do. Now, the third one that we used came from Revelation 1.17. It was John. John was the disciple that loved Jesus and the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had been with Jesus. They were close. And yet, when we see him in Revelation 1, he sees the splendor and the glory and the power and the 
the majesty of Christ. He sees all of the humanity sort of disrobed, if you will. He, he sees the curtains pulled back and he looks at the throne and he said, you can say it with me, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. He passed out cold. Isaiah, Peter, and John understood what it means to be poor in spirit. But oftentimes we do not. And some of us need to kill the peacock that's in us. We, we like to strut around with pride. And we need to get to the place where we recognize that all we have came from the hand of God. Now, as we consider this, we saw how spiritual poverty brings a shocking blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want to remind you of that because what Jesus was saying in present tense, not theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. He's saying right now, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. And the idea is very simple. We read it from Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15. You may want to jot that verse down again. Just jot the reference down. God speaking and he says, I am high and exalted. I live in the exalted place and with those who are contrite in heart. Those who are lowly in spirit. When you humble yourself, the Bible says that heaven will come and dwell with you. That God will be with you. I said it this way last week. Heaven is in the humble before the humble get into heaven. Before we physically translate from this life unto eternity, God says, I'll dwell with you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So today I want us to take our next step and begin to ask the question, how do we cultivate this attitude of poor in spirit? How do we cultivate humility? Pastor, how do I take off pride like a coat and how do I clothe myself in humility? Well, I think it's important for us to consider what we're taking off before we put something else on. And so I want to give you very simply that this outline. We're going to talk first about the curse of pride. Jot that down, the curse of pride. Pride is absolutely uh, devastating in the life of a human. In fact, we just read a moment ago in verse 5, God opposes who? The proud. Say it with me. God opposes the proud. Say it again. God opposes the proud. You walked in here today and you said, you know, God's just for everybody. God loves everybody. God cares. His word says, I oppose the proud. You want to put yourself face to face, squared off with God? You want to raise your fist and say, come at it, God, because God says, I oppose the proud. I want you to hear this. There's a very, very unique thought that if we give way to pride, God will stand against us. We'll come under his discipline. And God will stand in the way of the proud and oppose them but the Bible also says there, and we read this, but he gives grace to who? To the humble. There's a very different experience from that one who is far from God living in pride and that one who is near to God living in humility. Pride is unbelief. It's self-assurance. It's a sense of independence from God. And for those who really believe that there is this difference in experience, then the verse that follows is a natural conclusion. It's obvious. If you want God to be for you, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. 
Let's look at that one. Humble yourselves under, go to the next slide if you will. Read it with me, everybody. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. You see, the, pride, the fight against pride is a lifelong battle. It will continue to rear its ugly head. Humility is the very first grace given to a Christian. Listen, humility is the very first grace given to a Christian. That's where your Christian journey starts. You humble yourself recognizing, I can't save myself. I need God's help. I need a Savior. And Jesus Christ offered his life in exchange for yours. He offers to you salvation and pardon free and clear and that is a humbling thought that you didn't earn it you didn't deserve it God didn't give you what you deserve he didn't give you what you uh, in your life he didn't give you justice he didn't just give you mercy which was less than what you deserved he gave you exactly the opposite he gave you unmerited favor which is grace God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and the thought here is mind-boggling that you you would humble yourself under his hand, and this is the first grace given. You know, I began to think of this paradox this week of pride and of humility. Pride is the last enemy to be subdued. It's the very first grace given, but it's the last enemy in my heart to be subdued. I thought of this way too. Pride was the very first sin that entered the world, and it'll be the very last to be expelled from it. So why is it so hard, Pastor? Why is it so hard for me to submit myself to God and to humbly need from Him and depend on Him and ask of Him? Well, a couple of thoughts. Number one, I want you to see this, that humility swims against the current of a self-affirming culture. It swims against the current of a self-affirming culture. Everything around you is, is building you up. I, I got to thinking about this in my life, in this culture of affirmation. It seems that parents and teachers and counselors and politicians and advertisers are all conspiring to tell me and you exactly how great we are. And without a miracle of God, we believe it. We believe their hype. We want to stand and sing how great I art. I mean, we just say, I, I've, got, I've got it going on. I, I'm not a bad fella. I'm not a bad gal. And we put ourselves in that role, and humility swims against the culture. A, a, a lifetime ago, a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher, described the culture of the day, and he said this, express yourself. Believe in yourself. Realize the powers that are innate in yourself and let the whole world see and know them. Now, he didn't believe that. He was just describing it. He was a godly gospel preacher. But he said, this is what we're against. And that cuts against the grain of what Jesus said. Did Jesus say, believe in yourself? Yes or no? He said, believe in God. Believe also in me. In fact, what did Jesus say about yourself? He said, deny yourself. And if you are a person that says, I'm just going to believe in me. Well, guess what? You're putting yourself in the place of God. Because the Bible says, believe in God, believe also in me. The fight is a lifelong battle. In our culture of affirmation, the, the, the teaching of Jesus cuts directly against that. Consider with me for a moment, church, the contrast. The person that is humble, the person that is proud. The person that is close to God and the person that is far from God. The person who's far from God has all of it in their hands. I can handle this. I got it. I, I'm ready for it. I'm equipped to whatever comes. 
They, they overcommit at times in arrogance. They think, well, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. Maybe you do that in your home. And I'll just tell you, this smacked me in the face because there's so many times that I say, I've got I've to bear the whole load myself. I've got to carry the weight. And that's arrogant and pride-filled. But what happens is when we take on stuff and people pat us on the back for, oh, look at our pastor, look at our associate pastor, oh, my Sunday school teacher, oh, whatever, you begin to take that accolade from those people and you are affirmed by it and those pats on the back feel good and you go, boy, I, I do a good job. No, Christ is the one that's doing the good job. And if we're not careful, we begin to stand in that place. Now, we'll walk through this together and begin to see some things about it. You see, I believe this is very, very significant. When you overcommit in arrogance or when you have a prideful attitude, it leads to anxiety. And our society is riddled with anxiety. And I just want you to hear this. Pride is a foundation point for anxiety. Let me just ask you honestly, how many of you would be honest enough to say you struggle with anxiety in your life? I, I appreciate that, and I will pray for you. I don't know each and every person, but I have prayed because that is so, so damaging to our psyche and to our spirit. We deal with anxiety. But guess what? Verse 7. Go back to 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast your cares on him. It literally means this. Humble yourself by casting your anxiety on him for he cares for you. Do you see here that scripture is laying out pride as a source that would lead to anxiety and humility will handle your anxiety because you're casting it on him? Now, when you hear the word cast, I don't know what comes into your mind. If you're a fisherman in this group, you think of just kind of chunking that bait out there, just softly casting. Well, the word here in Greek has nothing to do with a soft, gentle cast. Uh, imagine, if you will, it's wartime, and you have found a rendezvous spot, and you've been behind enemy lines, and a helicopter lands to take you to a safe zone. And you're on your way running to the helicopter, and four or five feet away from that open door, you dive in. You cast yourself into it. That's what Scripture says in 1 Peter 5, 7. Give everything you got to God. Unload it on Him. Say, God, I can't carry this. Would you take it from me? And when you cast it upon Him, all of a sudden the anxieties begin to lift. If you're struggling here today with anxiety, I want you to hear this. It is a hard ghost to fight. You can't see where it's coming from. You can't always see what triggers it or what starts it. But all of us have pride in our lives. And you need to hear this. You can fight against pride. And if you'll fight against pride, it will ease up anxiety. I, I want you to see this from Scripture. He says, cast your cares on him, your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That ought to set somebody free today or at least start us on that road. Now, the person who walks with God, it's a different story entirely. She looks at the challenge kind of like the psalmist who said this in Psalm 16, 8, because the Lord is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What does wisdom say? Think about it. The person who walks with God has confidence in God, not in themselves. And the Bible says to do that. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. So biblical wisdom, biblical posturing says, humble yourself and cry out to God. That's exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew 5, 3 when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. When you come to the end of yourself 
And when I come to the end of myself and turn to God and cry out, all of a sudden I find healing. Why? Because I find the presence of God. Isaiah 57, 15, I, the high and lofty one, will dwell with those who have a contrite spirit. Does that make sense? I I want God to live close to me. I want God to be with me. Why? Not so I can say, hey, look at me. No, I want him to be near to me because I desperately need him. And so do you, whether you've acknowledged it or not. And we see the contrast. Now, as we move forward in this, the world turns that on its head. Go with your heart and doubt God. Satan has been working on this inversion since the Garden of Eden. He has said all along, trust yourself and doubt God. And it's rampant in the culture. So much so that many of us can't even recognize it. Many people are pridefully coming to church and pridefully checking off boxes and they think they're doing okay. And all the while they're living in utter independence in truth from God. Humility swims against this self-affirming culture. Secondly, I want you to see this. Humility goes against the trajectory of religion. It goes against, it cuts against the grain of religion. Religion works on the idea that you need to live a life that is pleasing to God so that you may earn His favor. And the idea is basically fundamental to every religious system in the world. But the idea of the Bible is this, that the blessing of God belongs to those who know that they cannot win His favor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And when that happens, the gospel has turned it on its head. Every religion says, live a life that pleases God so that you'll have his favor. And the gospel says, receive God's favor through Christ crucified, and then you'll begin to pursue a life of blessing in him. Now, let me add a a word of warning. This is something that you need to see. It's a little nuanced, but the blessing of God itself makes it even harder to be humble. The blessing of God itself makes humility harder. Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, when I start to see things going well in my life, here's the irony. The poor in spirit receive the blessing of God. And when the blessing of God comes into my life, I struggle to stay in a place of humility. I begin to think I must do something right. I mean, think about it. A straight-A student begins to believe somehow that he or she... um, It's hard for them to feel that he or she has nothing to offer God. The more successful you are, the easier it is to believe that you really are something. And the harder it is to believe that you need to be humbled. I mean, I could give you examples. If your children are walking in obedience and others are walking in rebellion, you might poke your chest out and go, hmm, we did something right. It's God's grace. If you see a marriage that is struggling or falling apart and you look at yourself, it would be absolutely easy for pride to come into our life and say, you know what, I'm doing pretty good and I've got it going on. And you pat yourself on the back. And the reality here is that we need to throw ourselves at God because God alone can meet our needs. Success of any sort in any sphere tends to make us think that we're something. You need to thank God for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life who has come to convince, uh, uh, convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Without Him, you and I would never know the blessing that belongs to the poor in spirit. You see, it's dangerous. Now, I want you to hear this. Pride leads to destruction. I want you to hear something. Pride leads to destruction. Hey, church family, I want you to hear something. Guess what it is? Pride leads to 
to destruction. We read just a moment ago, and let me illustrate it this way. Do any of you, how many of you know the name Lady Gaga? Most everybody's probably heard that. How many of you remember, this has been 11 years ago, she was at the Video Music Awards of MTV, and she was protesting PETA and, and other uh, abuses to animals, and she wore a meat dress. Anybody remember that? Hey, cool, that's like four of you. Good deal. Well, I want you to see it. There it is. That's not a dress that looks like meat. She's wearing a ribeye. Some of you are going, my pastor has lost his mind. I mean, she has a filet mignon on her head. What does the Bible describe our enemy as? A devourer. Just imagine that we took Lady Gaga to the zoo and we put her in with the tigers or the lions wearing her fashionable dress made of meat. What would happen to her? Lunch. It'd be over. And somehow we put on pride, and I want you to grab that image and think, some of you are walking around and you're feeding the enemies, devouring of your soul. The Bible says that you need to humble yourself, that you need to take off pride and clothe yourself in humility because the enemy is coming after us. Look at verse 8. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And that's what's wrong when you're wearing pride. You begin to think, I can do it. I've got it. I will. I'm the man. I, I'm the woman. I'm super mom. I'm really, really great at the office. I'm at the top of my game in my business. And when you begin to think of that, you're going to start looking like lunch to the enemy. Pride goes before a fall. And the enemy is a hungry lion. And that's interesting to me because you have an option here. And you know what you can do? Stop feeding the lion. It's kind of like a stray cat. You know what happens when you start feeding stray cats, right? They hang around. They go, hey, that's the place I get fed. I'm going back there. You stop feeding them, and sooner or later, they'll say, well, I'll go mess with somebody else. But this is a place where I get fed. I want a little more and a little more, and you put out more food, and they keep coming. Stop feeding your sinful nature. Stop feeding your pride. Stop indulging your pride. It's like an algorithm for social media. You watch one thing, and the ads start showing up for similar things, right? Oh, you like cars? Cool. Here's some ad for cars. In fact, oh, you like red cars? Well, great. Here's red cars. You like pickup truck. Okay, cool. Here's an ad for a red pickup truck. Hey, you like romance stories? Great. I'm going to watch that, and then I'll binge watch it. And all of a sudden, more stuff shows up. Oh, you like seeing people naked? Boom. And all of a sudden, people are sucked into pornography. I, I know that's a, a crazy turn, but the idea is that if you indulge your sinfulness, if you indulge your pride, sooner or later, the enemy who is looking for somebody to devour will come after your soul. Am I making sense to anybody? What's the antidote? Clothe yourself in humility. So we've looked at the curse of pride. Let's look at the blessing of humility for just the next couple of minutes. The blessing of humility. We read in 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now last week we saw that being poor in spirit 
We're blessed because God dwells with us. He dwells with those who are low and of a contrite heart. That's the first and the greatest blessing. But I want you to see this, that being in the presence of God brings on a multitude of other peripheral blessings. Let me give you two or three of them. Growing in humility will help you bear affliction. Write that down. It'll help you bear affliction because you're going to go through some stuff. And if you are humble through it, God's with you. And in the midst of affliction, I can't think of anything that you need more than the presence of God. There are times that I just long for him to be near to me. 1 Peter 4, 12, just a little earlier in the book said this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Peter was saying the genuineness of your faith is going to be tested like gold and it'll be refined. Trouble is on the horizon and Pastor Peter is speaking to that trouble to prepare them. And he says, if you want to stand up under it, you better better make sure that you, you are walking in grace. And how do you walk in grace? He said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humility leads us to a place of experiencing the presence and the grace of God. Think about Job's wife. What a proud woman. She said, you ought to just curse God and die. And Job showed humility, and he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see a stark contrast there. Second, let me show you this. Growing in humility will nourish your love for other people. I I love this, and I I ran across it this week in my study, just in a a happenstance moment, was reading through a passage that's so incredibly familiar, 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter. And I read the words, love does not boast. And it dawned on me that when I'm prideful, I throw a a water bucket on the the flames of the love in my marriage. I, I can kill a friendship by being prideful because love does not boast. And when you're boasting and when you're bragging and when you're walking in pride, you're not loving. It'll pour cold water on the fires of love in a marriage. It'll begin to make you think more highly of yourself than you ought to, and your marriage can become troubled. Humility will fan the embers of love in a flame. Think about this. I've seen it before. Somebody begins to question, do I really love her? Do I really love him? And the world will give them good advice from a worldly perspective. You need to think about you. I wouldn't let him treat me that way. I wouldn't let her talk to me that way. You need to just cut your losses and move on. And when that's the case, that cuts against the grain of what the Bible says. The Bible says don't think about you, think about others. It says put the preferences and the interest of others ahead of yours. That was in Philippians 2. Jesus was like that. He humbled himself. Kind of interesting for me to think. Christ says the opposite. You should not look to your own interest but to the interest of others. The path to restoration in a marriage where the fires are burning low, humility is on that path. Let me give you a third one. Growing in humility will strengthen you to overcome temptation. It'll help you to overcome temptation. What did the Bible say? We read it in Proverbs 16. Pride comes before a fall. The Bible tells us that a person who thinks he stands ought to be careful lest he fall. If pride comes before the fall, then humility is the grace that will help you to stand. 
Some of you are struggling with besetting sins. You just battle through it and you can't get over it. Maybe you just need to throw your hands up and surrender and say, God, I need you. And in the midst of that kind of humility, all of a sudden, what does God give? Grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, let me give you a a beautiful, beautiful word Colin Smith said about this. He said, pride is the gateway sin that opens the door to other sins. And humility, I love this, is the gateway blessing that opens the door to other blessings. Strike a blow at the master sin and you'll subdue many others. It's a good word for us. Maybe, just maybe, you're trying to battle some sin over here and the root is where you need to cut it off. You're, you're battling simply the symptoms and the root's pride. And we need to cut it down. How do we do this? How do we cultivate humility, Pastor? You, you've given me this idea of the curse of, of pride, the blessing of humility. Well, how do I do it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's just run through this and, and grab it. Two thoughts. One, use the right measure. Use the right measure. Do not measure yourself against what the world approves in you. Measure yourself against the Word of God. Measure yourself against the Ten Commandments. Measure yourself by the Great Commission. Measure yourself by the Great Commandments. Measure yourself by the Beatitudes, by the Sermon on the Mount. Measure yourself by anything and everything that God calls you to in the Bible. Let that be the standard. And when that becomes the standard, all of the stuff that the world tries to to applaud you for will go away. And the pride begins to melt. You'll become poor in spirit. You'll find yourself saying as every Christian does, Lord, I fall so woefully short of everything that your word calls me to that I've got nothing to bring and I need you. That's a powerful place to be. Some of you have never come to that place and today may very well be the day of your appointed homecoming that for the first time you would trust Jesus Christ and say, God, I've made a mess of this life. I've done some good things in the eyes of the world, but those things mean nothing. In eternity, my first thought about humility is that I have every reason to be humble, personally, because my sins are so many. I need to measure myself up against Christ. But secondly, I want you to see this. You need to follow the right model. You see, Jesus was sinless, but he was also humble. I don't want you to think that just making yourself feel guilty by measuring up to the standard of God's Word, well, that's what will produce humility is just a, a sense of my worthlessness. No. Jesus was the source of humility. The humility of Jesus didn't arise from sin. Humility is to be our joy, and I love this, not just to mark, not just the mark of shame because of sin, uh, humanity, excuse me, humility is being clothed in the very beauty and blessedness of heaven. When I find myself there, it's so much deeper than just contrition, it's participation in the life of Jesus. If you want to experience genuine humility, don't just walk around and beat yourself down and say, well, I'm worthless No, just recognize what what it means is for all eternity, Christ has offered to you the only thing that will solve the greatest problem in your life. And the greatest problem in your life is your sin. And he's made perfect restitution for that. He paid the penalty of death so that you and I would not have to die. 
And because of that, we can trust him. And then we get to participate in his life. And participating in the life of Christ takes me to places like pray and go. Why do I want to go pray over my neighbors? Because Jesus loves my neighbors and I just want to go. I don't want to do that so people will go, boy, look at Hardy Street. They're praying over 50,000 homes. No, I want to say, look at Jesus. He's worthy of every voice in all those 50,000 homes giving him praise and honor. And I just want to go for that reason. So follow the right model in Jesus Christ. Humanity in its highest perfection, Jesus, is humble. I wish we had time to go through some of the things that he said. But he said things like, I can do nothing on my own. I have not come to do my own will, but the will of my Father. I do not seek my own glory. And if those are the words of Christ, they ought to be your words and mine. Humble yourselves, therefore. Humility is a grace that brings more grace. People who are poor in spirit, ultimately, know their need and their poverty before God. And they have a blessing that will lead to greater blessing. They get traction. Some of you are looking at these Beatitudes and you say, you know what, I want to be a forgiving person and I want to find forgiveness. That's on down the list. But I I gave you an analogy last week. I said it's sort of like a plant that grows. There's roots and then there's a shoot and then there's the fruit. Some of you want the fruit and you've not yet gone down to the roots. The roots are those first three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn over their own sinfulness. You see, there's a hard attitude. And you've got to kill the pride in your life. And the best way to do that is simply to turn to God in faith. I encourage you, every one of you, to start here today at that place and say, I'm going to take off pride and I'm going to put on humility. I'm going to measure myself against the Word of God and recognize that I am in trouble without God. And the the blessings of purity and peace, all those things that are later, they'll come. God has gifts of grace for the humble. And those other things can be yours, but you got to start at the beginning. you got to start in this place. Tell him, God, I can't change. I can't save myself. It's not about doing a little better. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's about turning over your life to the Lord. And some of you need to do that. Love the old song. It said, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross do I cling. Some of you need to have that mindset today. Is that you? Christian, can you truly say? I mean, Peter's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians who had gotten to a place of, of the world pressing in on them. But he said, you know what? Take heart. God will refine you through this and he'll walk through it with you. God will help you stand up to temptation. God will bless you in those ways. And when you do, these people and us, we look to Jesus. And we know that in him, we have all that we need. That's what it means to be pure in spirit. Or poor in spirit. And that's what it means for us to put on humility. Church family, listen to me. We're never going to accomplish anything for the kingdom of God in our own pride. God won't stand for it. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves. I I sincerely mean this. This isn't a sense of false humility. I hope that if you come here and you never come here again, you forget my name, but you remember my Savior. I I want to to be like Jonathan Edwards who said, I want to preach Christ and die and be forgotten. I, I just want people to know him. And if you don't know him today, you can Let me encourage you. We're going to sing one simple song. We call this a a song of decision. 
And it's just a time that we set aside at the end of every service. Our musicians are making their way forward. If you need to make a decision of any sort, if you need to pray with somebody, we have encouragers that meet right down here. You can slip out while we're singing the song and walk to them, and they would love to take you um, by the hand, and they would love to take you with the Word of God and just show you how to be saved. Or they'd love to pray with you over whatever burden or need is in your life. This is a time for you to make decisions based on what you've heard. The Bible's pretty pointed. He says that he'll oppose the proud, but he'll give grace to the humble. Do you want to be in opposition to God, or do you want to walk in his grace? You have that choice to make. Let's stand and sing together.